Pleading the Case, a broadcast devoted to peeling back the culture and traditions associated with today's Christian faith through a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture. Welcome. My name is Andy Mendonza, and I will be your host. Have you ever considered that we can have the right Jesus for salvation, but the completely wrong model of Jesus for living it out? That's essentially what Paul is telling us in 2 Corinthians 11.4 when he says, For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preach, or if you receive a different spirit from the spirit you received, or a different gospel from the one you accepted. You put up with it easily enough. And do you know why we put up with it easily enough? If we examine the scriptures just preceding this one, in this same chapter, chapter 11, Paul is saying to us that he has betrothed us to one husband, Christ Jesus, that he desires that we be pure as a virgin. But he fears that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent, that our own minds may be led astray from our sincere and pure devotion to Christ. According to a widow, bride, and marriage theological perspective of Scripture, we have to understand, as the church, both male and female, that we are a bride. We're Christ's bride. Jesus came to redeem a bride. I know we call the bride a church, but we are still a bride. Jesus came to redeem a bride, which really makes the message of the gospel, what we call the gospel, the good news that Jesus rose from the dead, that he defeated death, a proposal of marriage. That's really what the gospel is. It's a proposal of marriage. Now, there seems to be two very distinct schools of thought about whether we are really a bride, that the church is really a bride, or that this is just figurative, metaphorical language that's being used here. Of course, these two schools of thought, this division, really lies, I would say, in general, almost exclusively with men, which is understandable. Because the idea of being a bride is very counterintuitive to us as men. But for a woman, it's completely intuitive. I'm pretty sure that this is the reason why Paul starts out chapter 11 the way he does. Listen to what he says. It's really weird when you think about it. He says, I hope you will put up with me in a little foolishness 
And he says, yes, please put up with me, exclamation point. When we look at what he says following this, it has to be why he starts it out this way. Because what he is saying, especially for men, is so counterintuitive. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I am afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunnings, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Now, if you're a man and you view what Paul has just said here exactly in the way that that he fears at the beginning of this chapter. Please put up with a little foolishness with me. If you come away from this thinking that this is foolish, that is just nice descriptive language uh, metaphorical, symbolic, figurative language, then essentially what has happened, uh, if, if as a man, or as a woman for that, for that matter, if, if I don't understand that, that Paul is talking to the church, and the church is made up of both men and women, male and female, with men, though, traditionally being the oversight, leadership, scholarly body of the church throughout its history, if, if you don't understand that this is your vulnerability as a bride for being deceived as Eve was, then essentially you have already been deceived in all of the interpretations and decisions that you make are rooted in this deception. How do we, as men, know that this is true? Well, think about it. One, it's logical and just makes perfect sense. In 1 Corinthians 15, it says that the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, who we know is Jesus, is a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. Jesus is the second and last and final Adam. There's only one other role left, and that's for being like Eve, the church being like Eve, Christ's bride being an Eve-like figure. We as the church, both male and female, 
can be likened to a last and final Eve. And like Eve, our vulnerability is that for being deceived like she was by the serpent, which means when we are deceived, our minds have been led astray from the pure and sincere devotion to Jesus because we don't recognize that that's our vulnerability, that our vulnerability is like that of Eve's for being deceived. As a man, this was really a hard thing for me to get my head around because when I first became betrothed to Jesus and different teachings that I sat under, whether they were through sermons or Bible studies, anything having to do with Eve was automatically attached to women and didn't apply to men in any way. And so realizing what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 11 really just was mind-boggling when I realized he was talking to the church and the church being a bride, but also being made up of both men and women, but with men being the leadership arm of the church, that men have the same vulnerability for being deceived as Eve was. That we can't just place all of this, this idea of deception and Eve and identifying with Eve, only women, um, it just destroys that argument. And why? Because once we accept Jesus' betrothal of marriage, we are considered to be already married to him, according to Jewish thought and tradition. Being betrothed is seen as being already married by God our Father, which means that once we are in Jesus, the last Adam, we are no longer identified with the first Adam. He's out of the picture completely. Jesus is the last Adam. He's our Savior, but he's also our husband and bridegroom. And the only other role there is, is that of bride. And as bride... We are an Eve-like figure. We can be likened to Eve in that our vulnerability for deception is exactly like hers. And what happened to her? She first became deceived, and then once she was deceived, she became the deceiver of her husband, Adam. And that's the progression. First, deception enters in. Then, we become deceived. And once we are deceived, 
then we become the deceivers of others. But being a deceiver isn't necessarily something that is rooted in some evil intent. It's not like when the serpent, who knew what he was doing, he intentionally came in to deceive. When we become deceived, we don't know we're deceived. It's not an intentional deception. So if we are deceived and then we become the deceivers, we don't even realize that that's what we're doing. And it doesn't matter who we are, whether we're sitting in the pew or we are standing before the congregation as the pastor uh, preaching a sermon. We just don't understand or realize that we have been deceived, and that's what deception does. It's subtle. It, it can creep in over a long period of time so that we don't even give notice to it. We think that deception comes like this, this banner-waving uh, force from the outside, like some kind of roaring lion or dragon that's very obvious, that, that is just is storming the gates of our, of our churches. It's just very identifiable to us and we can be on our guard from it we can recognize it immediately no that's not how deception comes deception will almost always come to us from the inside from people in a setting that we have come to trust and through leaders that we have submitted ourselves to that who have authority over us that's where deception comes. Now, having said this, I can certainly imagine how some who might be listening to this might truly be offended because this is a pretty harsh accusation against essentially church leaders, whether they are local church leaders overseeing local churches or national church leaders or Christian leaders, how could they possibly have risen to those positions, gone through the certification, seminary, degrees of study, ordination, and be in these positions and at the same time be deceived and therefore being guilty of deceiving others. I mean, it's a truly frightening thought, but it's not one that when you really begin to understand what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, about deception, about understanding that we as the church, both male and female, are a bride and that's how God sees us and just as Eve was deceived by the serpent Paul fears that our vulnerability like Eve for being deceived will lead us from the place of 
having sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The question you might be asking yourself at this point is, how can we possibly be deceived? How can our, our leaders be deceived when they are preaching and teaching the truth of the gospel, that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that he came and offered his life on our behalf so that we, in accepting him, can be with him for all eternity. If that's being preached, if we stand on that truth, the truth of the gospel message, the truth of Jesus, the only person through which we can be saved, then how is it possible that we could also be deceived, that our preachers and teachers and leaders have themselves been deceived because they're preaching the truth and that because they are deceived, we have become deceived and in turn then become the deceivers of others. And that's a completely valid point. In fact, it is so valid, that's why one of the reasons I believe this passage in 2 Corinthians 11, chapter 11, is, is overlooked because we only really are willing to consider the possibility of deception in the case of those individuals, leaders, um, that don't believe in the truth of the gospel, that, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the only way that we can be saved, that we can be redeemed, that we can be with him, be with God, be in his presence for all eternity. Consequently, that becomes our litmus test for measuring our, our condition as a church, as a bride. That's what we stand on. We must be that pure as a virgin bride that Paul talks about, that he desires us to be, having been betrothed to one husband, we must be that if we're preaching this truth of the gospel. If we are standing on this truth, maintaining this truth, guarding this truth, then that's our litmus test. As long as we're doing that, then that's proof that we have not been deceived, even though we may not really acknowledge, at least half the body, men, that our vulnerability is, is that of Eve, for being deceived. Um, but let's look, at, let's look at the church leaders when Jesus came. Let's look at some of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and the interpreters of the law and the, the scribes. Um, let, let's look at one of, some of the things that he, uh, he says to them and about them, because it it might might really surprise you. We we are we tend to be under this impression 
that the problem was that they weren't teaching the truth. They weren't interpreting the law correctly. That they were way off the mark when it came to salvation. That they were just a works-based faith. That's what they had become, trying to, to earn their salvation, earn their way into God's favor. But is that really true? Is that really true that, that they had lost sight of the truth and were no longer preaching and teaching the truth? Actually, I think when we look at even just a couple of key passages, encounters that Jesus has with some of the leadership, we will find that that just the opposite of that is true. That, that Jesus never accuses the leadership of not correctly interpreting the law. In fact, in one case, Luke 25, beginning with verse 10, the parable of the Good Samaritan, when an interpreter of the law comes up to Jesus, he asks him, what must I do to be saved? And Jesus says, how, how do you interpret the law? How do you understand what is written in the law? And the interpreter of the law says, love the Lord your God with your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus commends him and says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Then in Matthew 23, 2 and 3, Jesus says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. So you must be careful to do everything they tell you, but do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. Then continuing on in verse, verses 4 and 5, he, he says, but they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Just a note here from this passage the word hypocrite is used. And I know that most of us have heard churches described, especially by individuals who don't want to have anything to do with churches, say, ah, churches are just full, full of hypocrites. And as good, faithful believers, we 
acknowledge that and say, yes, you're right. We, we are hypocrites, but we love Jesus. You know, we belong to Jesus. We, we have the truth of the gospel, of salvation. But the reality is, is that we should not be churches filled with hypocrites. That's a horrible thing. And I don't know how or why we ever have thought that that is compatible with knowing the truth and living out the truth, except when we lose sight of the model of Jesus for living out our faith. When we lose sight of that, then we just stay in one place and we stand firm on the truth of salvation. The word hypocrite has to do with being an actor or a stage player or a dissembler or a pretender. And a dissembler is a person who professes beliefs and opinions, but that he or she does not hold in order to conceal his or her real feelings or motives. And it, the root word that, that this word hypocrite comes from, one of its meanings is to make answer, to speak on the stage, to impersonate anyone, to play a part you know, when we say we are a church filled with hypocrites, what we're literally saying is that we are a church filled with impersonators. That we say we believe in the truth of the gospel of Jesus, but at the same time, we don't, we either don't understand or we refuse to accept the responsibility in our salvation for becoming like Jesus outside of the city gate, so to speak, uh, bearing Christ's reproach. Because here we don't have an enduring city, but we are to look to the city that is to come. Remember, this is what Jesus said. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, Jesus said, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the ones who do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evil doers! Exclamation point. Now, there is one instance, though. It's in Mark chapter 7, verse 6 and 7 where Jesus is quoting the prophet Isaiah. And he says, Rightly did Isaiah prophesy 
of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far away from me. But in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. This is a perfect example of standing on the truth of salvation or, as the Jews did, claim to be Abraham's children and standing on that truth and making as equal priorities for that truth a system derived by man over hundreds of years, if not thousands of years, based on tradition, and although, perhaps without words, but implied demands of loyalty too, elevating it to the level of, of truth, of the same truth of the gospel. And what I mean by that is just just looking at the way we function as local churches and the arguments that we have that really have become set in stone. Arguments over baptism, whether it should be full immersion or if sprinkling on the top of the head is enough, whether babies should be baptized or dedicated or nothing at all until they reach the point of making a decision for themselves. The order of worship. What has to be included in a worship service? What can't be included in a worship service? Who can get up in front of the church and read scripture? Who can't? All of these things are to mess with them, to break with them, is akin to to heresy and blasphemy itself. But these are precepts of men that have been elevated to doctrinal truth as though it is clearly written out in Scripture, that we can point to it, that we can read it off, and we can say, we have to do this in order to be faithful to God and keepers of the truth, to keep the purity of the church intact. Remember now, at the beginning of this podcast, I brought up the term widow, bride, and marriage theology or theological perspective of scripture and really didn't go into it in that much depth other than to talk about our being a bride, that Jesus came to redeem a bride. In order to examine the church, examine who we have become based on this perspective, Now, I know this is probably not familiar to anyone, this idea of what the heck is widow, bride, marriage, theology. And what does it have to do with the church being deceived? 
Well, it kind of came together over a 20 to 25 uh, year period of time for me personally. And it really began with James 127, which says, pure and undefiled religion before our father is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress to keep oneself unpolluted by the world. And that may seem like a very, very strange place for this perspective to have begun. But that's exactly where it began. But in a nutshell, widow-bride-marriage theology begins with the premise that Adam and Eve, and we know in marriage that the two flesh are one, that they were in a marriage relationship, if you will, with God, and they sin. And what was their sin? Their, their sin was they ate fruit that was only intended for God. Adam had been commanded not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He passed this on to Eve. She's tempted first and then deceived, and then she becomes the deceiver. But, but what they literally did was commit an act of self-worship. Eating fruit only meant for God, which is something that we do every day of our lives. We eat fruit. We withhold our thanksgiving to God. Like a scripture says, give him thanks in all things in Christ Jesus' name. And those things that we hold on to that he has meant for us to, to share with others, whether it's our, our personal possessions or resources or our, our own lives. Every time we withhold from others in what it means to love our neighbors as ourselves, we are withholding from God. We are committing acts of self-worship. And God considers those acts of self-worship in our relationship with Him to be idolatry. And idolatry is synonymous with adultery with God. And every time Israel fell away from God, God calls them harlots, whoremongers, adulterers, and he divorces them. But he also considers their divorce the resulting condition to be that of widowhood. He says to, to Israel in Isaiah, he says, I will remember the reproach of your widowhood no more. Well, obviously Israel's husband didn't die because God was her husband. So she is a widow by virtue of God divorcing her. And that's exactly what God does with Adam and Eve. When it says he drove out the man after they sinned and he exiles them from the garden, drove out, uh, one of the meanings of that word 
is divorce. God divorces Adam and Eve. That's when, that is the precedent for divorce in Scripture. It begins with Adam and Eve. God institutes divorce. As hard as that might seem to be able to accept, but that's what God does because they are one in their relationship to Him. And they, in being divorced, in being removed from the garden, their newfound condition, both on a spiritual level as well as a physical reality, is that of widowhood and fatherlessness, for that matter. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, the word for widow um, is really the idea of desolation, being desolate. In the New Testament, it's being bereft of a husband. And there is no circumstance being applied to that. It doesn't matter what age you are or uh, what the circumstance was that, that caused that condition of widowhood, being bereft of a man, whether it's divorce, abandonment, uh, a husband dies, he might be in prison, he might be in a nursing home, or he might be completely disabled. Um, I, I, I suspect that God would even consider a woman who is never married uh, to be a widow, in a sense. So, but Adam and Eve are also this spiritual condition of widowhood. They have lost their husband. They have lost their heavenly father, in a sense. He has removed them from his presence, but he doesn't abandon them. In fact, what he does is pursues them as a bridegroom would pursue a prospective bride. God promises to send a Savior, a Redeemer, who will deliver, redeem, and ultimately restore us back into paradise. And Jesus, we believe that Jesus is the one that God sent. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. But our Savior... The promised Messiah that we believe to be Jesus is also husband and bridegroom because Jesus came to redeem a bride. Bottom line, that's what we talked about in 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4. Jesus came to redeem a bride, and God desires that we remain pure as a virgin and not be deceived in the ways that Eve was, that our minds not be led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Jesus. But what does that look like? How, how do we measure that? Right now, as I've said before, the way that we measure this is standing on the truth of the gospel. And as long as we remain faithful to, to preach and teach this, to share our faith, then we believe we're being faithful, that we are being obedient, fully obedient, fully faithful, fully pure. 
But is that true? No, it's not true because we have forgotten Jesus as recorded in the gospel accounts being our model for living out this truth that begins with him. So, apart from Jesus, our condition is that for being spiritually widowed or spiritual widowhood. And we're also fatherless. We're also orphans. We're also comfortless. We have no Holy Spirit. When we accept Jesus' proposal of marriage according to Jewish tradition, it means that we are already married. Being betrothed means being already married, but we still are waiting for the wedding ceremony to take place. And we know that's going to happen because that's how the end of Revelation ends. Right? So, for God so loved the world, he sent his only begotten son, Jesus, Savior, Messiah, Bridegroom, to visit us in our distress because of our condition of spiritual widowhood and fatherlessness. And when we accept that proposal, we are immediately adopted into our Heavenly Father's family. We immediately become His children, co-heirs with Jesus. That's what Jesus does for us. So what does James 1.27 have to do with this? Why is it important? How can it reveal to us our own guilt for being hypocrites, for teaching as doctrines the precepts of men. That even though we we are worshiping God with our lips, God looks at us and says, but your heart's are far away from me. Is that the case for us today? Is there any truth to this? Or is it because of our standing on the truth of salvation through Jesus that we have become so deaf and so blind and so deceived that we don't even realize This is what has happened to us. That deception has crept in in very subtle ways over long periods of time. In fact, maybe 2,000 years of time. Remember, when, when Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 11, when he is bringing this up, with this very young church, these these new converts, when he says, please put up with a little foolishness with me. And then he says, no, please, you need to understand this. This is critically important about your relationship with Jesus. This was 2,000 years ago, and it was a problem already. And he, he is wanting them to understand this at the very outset, how 
critically important it is. So if it was a problem 2,000 years ago, and I understand they didn't have the New Testament, uh, they only had letters and, and testimonies. But what has happened over 2,000 years to just completely bury our understanding of this so that we have become so deceived that all we are doing is perpetuating our deception? Remember what John the Baptist said? You brood of vipers? And Jesus, he, he uses this same language, calls the leaders snakes, vipers himself. Why is he saying this? He's saying this because they not only have been deceived themselves, they are the deceivers. That's what he means by this. When, when Jesus, as well as John the Baptist, this is what they mean by this. They are calling it out for what it is. They are telling the leaders, you have become deceivers and you don't even know it. You're so deceived that Jesus says, you don't even recognize me. You've got the scripture. You have the description. You should be able to hold that up. Look at me, look at it, and see that I am the promised Messiah. I am the Son of God. I am the one you have been waiting for, and you don't even recognize me because your father is not my father. That's frightening. That's frightening to think that that could be the state of the church today. But see, we refuse to believe that that can even be a possibility because, like they did, stood on the claim that they were the sons of Abraham, we, in like manner, are standing on our belief in having the truth of salvation. And as long as we can stand on that truth, it excuses everything else that we either do or don't do that God wants us to do and wants us to be as Christ's bride, as the church, as his betrothed. Now, if you will just bear with me for a few minutes and let me give just a little bit of historical perspective for the next section of scripture that I want to discuss. Uh, it's James 1.27, a passage that is certainly seen as mandating the care of the widows and the fatherless in their distress, but it's a much, much more profound, much larger passage than this. It, it literally takes in the entirety of Scripture. In fact, I have come to think of it as, as a bride passage, uh, an instruction from the bridegroom to his bride. I first discovered James 1.27 a little over 30 years ago 
back in 1986 when I was praying about the need to start a ministry with widows. And it was during that, that period of, of praying about the need as well as whether I should actually start a widow's ministry that I came across James 127. And when I read it in the context of seeking God, it was one of those God smack moments. It was like a, a bucket of ice cold water being poured over the top of my head. It, that's how dramatically it, it struck me that this passage makes it so plain that the care of the widows and the fatherless is crucially important to God, and therefore it should be crucially important to us. Because that's what Jesus came to do. He came to take our condition of spiritual widowhood and fatherlessness away from us by giving up his life, laying down his life, being resurrected from the dead, defeating death, and then when we accept the gospel, the good news of the gospel, uh, his proposal of marriage to us, that's what he takes away from us. So, in effect, the widows and the fatherless are a physical representation for what Jesus has done for us spiritually. But perhaps the greatest stumbling block in this passage is the word religion. And it certainly challenged me for a number of years before I finally came to realize when I looked it up, looked up the original Greek meaning, that it more accurately speaks to us about worship, pure and undefiled worship before our Father is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress. And that radically radically changed, was the, the beginning point for me to begin to try and understand what worship actually is. Because my complete orientation to worship up until that point was a worship service. That what we do in a worship service, the components of a worship service, uh, that is what defined worship for me. And trying to understand worship in the context of James one twenty seven, which says we have to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress, that, that's what God considers to be pure and undefiled worship. And there's no other place in all of Scripture, no other place in the New Testament that uses words like pure and undefiled, which, which describe Jesus. He's the only one that was pure and undefiled. So this, this Christ-like action that we are called to take, uh, there's no other place that any other action that we are called to or actions that we are called to are described as being pure and undefiled and certainly not in the context of worship. There is no place in the New Testament that you can find the gathering of the saints in 
any like fashion for what we do today when we come together as the church, whether it's on a Sunday morning or Sunday evening or a Wednesday evening, and call that worship, there is no place in the New Testament that calls that, specifically calls that worship. And there's certainly not any place that calls it pure and undefiled worship. That doesn't mean that that isn't worship. What we are doing is not being offered up to God as worship, but it is a a definition of worship that you can't find in Scripture. It's a practice definition, and it has become really the only definition of worship that that we ascribe to, that we have adopted uh, as being worship. Uh, I often will ask people, okay, I'm going to say the word worship. What immediately comes to mind? And in every single instance, the answers are singing, prayer, a sermon, an offering, uh, reading scripture, And what they have just described is a worship service. But worship, based on James 1.27, that unless all the widows and the fatherless and their distress show up on Sunday morning for the worship service, it says we have to go out to them. Because that's what God sent Jesus to do for us. For God so loved the world He sent His only begotten Son to visit us in our distressful condition for being widowed and fatherless, spiritually widowed and fatherless. So to bypass the widows and the fatherless, the physical widows and the fatherless, is to essentially say to Jesus, to our Heavenly Father, we have forgotten what you have done on our behalf. 1 Timothy 5, when it talks about a man who does not care for his family, is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. If you read that in the context of the other passages that precede it, it includes as family any widows in that family, a widowed mother, a widowed grandmother, a widowed aunt, a widowed sister, maybe even a cousin. But it also... Everything that, that Scripture speaks to us on a, a personal level, it all speaks, also speaks to us on a corporate level. As the church, as Christ's bride, both male and female. A man or a church that does not care for its family is worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. James one twenty seven. Pure and undefiled religion before our Father is to visit the widows and the fatherless in their distress in order to keep ourselves from being polluted by the world. The word and that's been inserted there is not in the original Greek text. And if you read, read that last line in the context of the rest of that passage, in fact, the entirety of Scripture, you can't come to any other conclusion but that it is meant to be understood as in order to keep ourselves from being polluted 
by the world. One of the figurative meanings of that word keep is unmarried. Because remember, in our relationship with God, idolatry and adultery are synonymous. So what this is saying is that the neglect of the widows and the fatherless in their distress, the neglect by us specifically, is idolatry slash adultery. Again, repeating Jesus' own words, Matthew 23, 23. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites, exclamation point, you give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin, but you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. Jesus isn't saying that the former is not important. What he's saying is that, in essence, for us today, yes, it's important to stand on the truth of salvation. That's paramount in this, because if you don't know the truth, if you haven't accepted the truth, then the second part of that doesn't matter. But accepting the, the truth of salvation means that we also have to practice the truth about Jesus' own life being the model for our own lives. Listen to what Isaiah says in chapter 1, verse 17. This is also the verse where the title of this podcast comes from. Isaiah says, Learn to do right. Seek justice. Okay, learn to do right and seek justice. Now he is going to tell us what that means. What learning to do right and seeking justice looks like. What it has to do with. It says, defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. James 1.27, pure and undefiled worship is visiting the widows and the fatherless in their distress in order to keep us from being polluted by the world. You have to realize, though, that Isaiah 1.17 is being written in the context of worship. But we have lost sight or our understanding of what actually defines worship in God's eyes. You know, part of the problem is that English is a very limited language. There's 10 to 12 different words in the Greek, Greek words that have all been translated as the one word worship in English or some tense of that. Worshiped, worshiping. There are even words Greek words that mean worship but haven't been translated actually as the word worship. There's an even better example in the Old Testament in Zechariah, Zechariah 7, and I'm going to read the 
the whole chapter, just so you can understand it in the context of this chapter. But you also need to think about this as I read it, that what is really being addressed here by the prophet, but, but also by God, with Israel is worship. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. The people of Bethel had sent Sharazer and Regamelech together with their men to entreat the Lord. By asking the priests of the house of the Lord, the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Should we keep doing things business as usual? Then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? Kind of to put this in modern day terms, when you went to church Sunday morning, Sunday evening, Wednesday evening, attended Bible studies, prayer meetings, all of that, was it really for me that you were doing this unto? Why? Because... This is what he says. Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous? And the Negev and the western foothills were settled. And the word of the Lord came again to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Remember Isaiah? Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. All right. He says, administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Remember, this is in the context of worship. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and covered their ears. They're turning their backs on God. And they're covering their ears. They don't want to hear this. They have become complacent. They, as, as long as it's kind of this inside thing where they can come together and it's really not costing them anything of themselves, they don't want to hear about it. They don't want to endanger what it is that they have, their lifestyles, their, their wealth, their property, uh, their leisure time. They don't want to hear it. They're just fine. They're content. It says, they made their hearts as hard as flint and would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. And listen, this is, he's, he's, you can't get any closer 
to this to prove that, that this is worship. You know, even today when we are in church, we have call and response. Somebody from the front of the church, uh, usually from the pulpit, calls out to the congregation, and then they respond. There's a call and response. Listen to what, what God says, what, what is recorded here. When I called, when I called out to you or to them, they did not listen. So what if somebody was up front calling out and everybody in the congregation just had blank stares on their face? Or what if they did respond? Even though they did respond, they, the words that they spoke may not have been true about their own lives and their own actions. Praying and fasting in the fifth and seventh months, but not unto me, God said. You know, eating participating in, in the, the feast. Weren't eating unto me, God says. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called out to me, okay, now things are bad. What's going on, Lord? Look at our country. Look at our situation. Look at what's happening in the world. Why is this happening? Why? Well, it's pretty plain according to this not caring for the widows and the fatherless, letting our uh, anger burn against one another. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen. A critical mass was reached. Our worship is either pure and undefiled or it's impure and defiled. One Pure and undefiled worship leads to restoration, which is the fulfillment of the last part of the promise that God made to us when he sent Jesus. He sent Jesus to be Savior, Bridegroom, and Husband who would deliver, redeem, and ultimately restore us. Pure and undefiled worship leads to restoration. Guess what impure and defiled worship leads to when it reaches a critical mass. This last verse in chapter 7 makes it as plain as it can possibly be put. And this is not, this is not an allegory. This actually happened. God says, I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land they left behind, and remember, this was a wonderful land. The land they left behind them was so desolate. And remember what the word widow means? Desolate. The land, it's even the land became like the widow, the condition of widowhood, that no one traveled through it. It was so miserable that no one would even, even travel through it. But this is, this is the part that, that should just send fear and trembling to our very core, both, both as individuals as, as well as, as churches, the church. God then places the blame for what happened squarely on their shoulders. He says, this is how they made the pleasant land desolate. 
And I would say today, and this is how we are making our pleasant land a desolate place. It is becoming like the widow, bereft of a husband. Now, we know that Jesus will never leave us nor forsake us. I know that we are under a covenant of grace. We are not under the law, but it doesn't take away what we can cause and be guilty of causing to happen to the very land itself. There are consequences for our adulterous, idolatrous ways that have nothing to do with our belonging to Jesus. And that's why I say we stand on the truth of the gospel and everything else seems to be excused beyond that. That we don't understand what it means to do right, to seek justice. That to do right and to seek justice means we defend the oppressed, we take up the cause of the fatherless, and we plead the case of the widow. We administer true justice. We show mercy and compassion one to the other. Why? Because, because of God's mercy, Romans 12, 1, because of God's mercy, the mercy that he shows us, and we know that, that he pours out his mercy on the just and unjust alike, but for us, for us, because of God's mercy, because he sent Jesus to us, in our condition of spiritual widowhood and fatherlessness, we are to be living and holy sacrifices, which is our spiritual service of worship. And so what does that look like? How do we know what it, what it looks like to be a living and holy sacrifice? We've got the model of Jesus in the Gospels that presents to us in very plain language his actions, his words, who he said it to, where he said it, and why he said it. It's there. He was the first living and holy sacrifice who was born without sin so that he could lay down his life for us so that we might live in him as his betrothed. We are living in holy sacrifices. And the idea of sacrifice is that we are both The giving of sacrifices as well as the victim of sacrifices. Jesus was both the sacrifice and the victim of sacrifice. He, he offered up his life and his life was taken from him. We as well are to be both the sacrifice and the victim of sacrifice. As we 
become less and less, and Jesus becomes more and more in our lives. And he can't become more and more in our lives when we neglect, when we cause the widows and the fatherless to be oppressed. It's an impossibility. You know, there's a reason that Jesus, as his last act on the cross, it's recorded in only one gospel, the Gospel of John. Jesus, right before he dies as his last act on the cross, makes provision for his widowed mother Mary. It says, woman, behold your son. He's speaking of John, the disciple whom he loved. And he says, John, behold your mother. And it says from that moment on, she lived under his household. Now, one, as the eldest, it was Jesus's responsibility to make provision for his widowed mother. Remember 1 Timothy 5, a man who doesn't care for his family is worse than an unbeliever and is denied the faith. This is also an act of pure and undefiled worship that Jesus offers up as his last act on the cross. But it's also because she is a widow. It also calls attention to what Jesus has come to do, that he has come to offer up his life as the fulfillment of God's promise to Adam and Eve to send a bridegroom, to be deliverer, redeemer, and restorer. Who better to exemplify that as his final act on the cross? What he has come to do and what he will accomplish through his death, defeating death and being resurrected, than through this act of pure and undefiled worship, making provision for his widowed mom. And the difficult thing for us to understand in this is that his mom was a number of different things in her life, a number of different roles. She, she, was, she was a virgin. She was a virgin bride, right? She was betrothed. She gets married. She becomes a mother. She becomes a wife. And she becomes a widow. The difficult thing for us to understand about Mary in the context of what is happening here is that Mary will also, is also, a part of the church. She is someone just like all of us that, that Jesus has come to redeem, to deliver, redeem, and to ultimately restore that's hard for us to understand that, that Mary, who is his mother in this life, she gives birth to him, but that she will also ultimately become his bride. So when we look at 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 4, when Paul says, I have betrothed you to one husband and I desire that you be pure as a virgin, how do we measure that? Well, one, it has got to be tied to worship. We have to understand the bigger picture of worship and what God is calling us to 
in coming outside the camp, outside the city gate, and bearing Christ's reproach, sharing in his suffering, being crucified with him, that here we don't have an enduring city. Everything about this life and this earth is perishable, but we are to be focused on the city that's to come, the new Jerusalem, when we will be joined for Je- with Jesus for all eternity at the marriage of the Lamb. So what's our litmus test? Our litmus test is doing right, seeking justice, defending the oppressed, taking up the cause of the fatherless, pleading the case of the widow, James 1.27, essentially. And if we look at Acts chapter 6, and I'm going to wrap this up. We look at Acts chapter 6, when the widows are being overlooked, the minority widows, the Greek widows, are being overlooked in the distribution of food, the daily distribution of food. Uh, The Hebraic widows, the majority widows, they're being cared for. The disciples stop doing what they're doing, They just simply say it does not please us to leave what we're doing at this moment, the the preaching and teaching and and prayer that we're involved in right now. But this this is a critical mass moment for the early church. And they they choose seven people that that are filled with the Spirit. And and are mature Christians. And to be a mature Christian Christian means that we are servants, that we we accept that to be like Jesus is to serve and not be served. But this is also the introduction to Stephen. Stephen is one of the seven who were chosen to do this. And immediately following this, in verse 8, and through the next chapter, it's all about Stephen. Stephen, one of the most remarkable people in the New Testament. The first martyr. The only one that Jesus stood up in heaven for. And he's chosen to wait tables. Not just once, but, but they are given authority. They, they are ordained to this position, these seven men. They lay hands on them. They pray over them to wait tables. That's how significant this is in God's eyes because it is pure and undefiled worship. And what happens? What is the outcome? The Great Commission is the outcome. Verse 7 says, And the word of God spread, and many disciples were made in Jerusalem. That's the Great Commission, to go into all the world and make disciples. And even priests came to the faith because they fed these widows and these minority widows at that. The word visit in James 1.27 is tied to both deliverance and redemption. When God delivers Israel out of the hands of, of the Egyptians, out of the land of Egypt, I will come and deliver my people and I will redeem them as my people. And I will call them unto me as a nation. I will restore them. All of that. I will visit them. I will redeem them. Then with Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, after he has been struck mute and regains his speech, 
He says in Luke 1, verse 68, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, for he has visited his people to redeem them. In Luke chapter 7, verse 16, when Jesus is with his disciples in the town of Nain, and there is a young man whose mother is a widow, and he's died, and Jesus raises him from the dead. Then the crowd began to shout, Surely God has visited us. They knew that God had visited them because the dead had been raised. This same word for visit is even found in Acts chapter 6, verse 3. In this instance, though, it hasn't been translated as the word visit. It has been translated as the word choose or select, as in brethren choose or select seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And in every one of these instances, God is fulfilling his promise to deliver, redeem, and to ultimately restore us. God is literally breathing his life into this. The care of the widows and the fatherless as pure and undefiled worship, that will be the outcome. It will give rise to deliverance and redemption and ultimately our eternal restoration with Jesus, our faithful husband and bridegroom, where we will dwell with him in the new Jerusalem and paradise. Amen. You've been listening to Pleading the Case with Andy Mendonca, posing the question, is the church today the pure and undefiled bride that God desires us to be? Or, like Eve, have we been deceived and our minds led astray from our pure and sincere devotion to Christ? And I sincerely welcome your comments. Feel free to leave them on our website, or if you want to send me an email directly, you can send it to andy at widows.org. Until next time.